following podcast is a production of Radio Felician, the voice of Felician University and the home of alternative rock done right. Download the Radio Felician app via the Apple app or Google Play stores or stream us 24-7 worldwide at RadioFelician.com. Radio Felician, the Falcon. Welcome to Elevating Education, a podcast from the Franciscan University of New Jersey with two campuses in Lodi and Rutherford. Your host is Dr. Joy De Los Reyes, assistant professor in the Felician University School of Business and Information Sciences and founder of the Women's Leadership Initiative at Felician University. Elevating Education is an in-depth look at the ever-changing world of education and the challenges educators and students face in 21st century America. Hello, this is Joy De Los Reyes and welcome to the newest installment in the podcast series from Radio Felician and the Felician School of Business and Information Sciences, Elevating Education. In this episode, I'd like to feature a conversation recorded by my former co-host, Dr. Charity Dacey. Listen in as she talks to our guests today, Dr. Katie Croce and Jamie Salter, about the challenges, expectations, and shifting child behaviors as a result of virtual classroom environments. For more on their research, please be sure to check out the links in the description for this episode and enjoy this installment of Elevating Education. We are here um, talking about a system called Self and Match. And first, Jamie Salter, she's the co-creator of Self and Match. She has served for a decade as a special education senior program specialist. In her role, Jamie led special educators in writing effective and legally defensible behavior intervention plans, guided special educators in program and curricular development, and facilitated students, families, and IEP teams in selecting appropriate programs for students that are best met um, through their unique abilities. Jamie received her educational specialist degree national certified um, school psychologist status and her BCBA certification all through Lehigh University. Jamie, as a fun side note, is also an avid pickleball player. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be joining you today. And then we have Dr. Katherine Croce. Dr. Katie Croce is a BCBAD. Katie received her doctorate in educational leadership from St. Joseph's University her master's degree in applied behavior analysis from Temple University, and Katie has worked as a behavior analyst and special education program coordinator in schools, homes, and in inpatient hospitals for children and adolescents. Katie currently works in higher education as an assistant professor here at Felician University in the School of Education, where she teaches and advises students in the ABA programs we offer. As also a fun side note, those who know Katie know she's happiest when wearing Lily Pulitzer. Welcome both Jamie and Katie. Thank you, we're excited to be here today. So I guess let's start with a little background about how you both met and how Self and Match came into existence. Absolutely. So. Both Katie and I um, were passionate about working with individuals with unique abilities for basically our entire life. As far back as I can remember, I've had some experience um, supporting individuals. And um, we 
both went to graduate school in the field, as you mentioned earlier. I went to Lehigh University. I was studying school psychology and um, also my board certified behavior analyst degree, while Katie concurrently was at a different university. And we like to say that the stars kind of aligned for our meeting. We were in two different programs studying two different fields, um, both in the education er domain. And ultimately, we were placed on the same internship site. So I was doing my internship in school psychology, and Katie was doing her internship in behavior analysis. And we wound up with the same supervisor for one project. And through that one project was where we really first kind of developed a friendship and then really realized we had so many common interests in this field of um, supporting individuals with challenging behaviors in the schools and kind of how self match came to existence. And I think what was really neat is that, again, having those stars aligned, Jamie was learning about self-monitoring and really focusing on that for her um, thesis project. And I was learning about self-monitoring in my program. And both of our mentors were kind of big hitters in the field of self-monitoring. So we were getting kind of the latest and greatest from them. And you know, trickling it down to us. Um, and then what we were seeing in the classroom was there was a lot of adult directed interventions where adults were given tokens to students or adults were giving stickers or adults were giving points to students, but we weren't seeing a lot of that interaction between the student and the staff members. And what we were learning about self-monitoring was that self-monitoring is a great way to increase independence. And in schools, that is our goal, right? Our goal is to make our students less reliant on us and more independent. And so that's when, you know, kind of the wheels started turning for us about how do we really make this meaningful um, and work in a classroom, but not scare people away with our technical terminology. You know, I think it's easy when people say, make a contract, make a point sheet, make a clip system. But when they hear self-monitoring, I think people think that sounds very technical. So kind of as Jamie mentioned, um, self and match is a systematic intervention that people can use in their classrooms. But what we've done is we have taken the scientific technical jargon and put it in regular everyday terms that people feel are very approachable. And it's very easy for them to go through this kind of system that we've created and come out on the other side with a really meaningful self-monitoring intervention that helps students be more independent, better access to their instruction, and ultimately a better quality of life. So that's kind of like Absolutely. where it started. And yeah. Katie, what I was going to jump in and share with you, kind yeah. of going up, piggybacking what you were talking about, is that self-monitoring has been around forever. We know that there's been self-monitoring research since before we were born and, and self-monitoring research in the 60s and the 70s. But this piece of self-monitoring where there's also an accountability check, there's someone, not only are you monitoring your own behavior, but someone else is checking in on you and reflecting on your behavior. That's been researched since the 70s. So what we wanted to do with Self-Match and what kind of initially started organically, but then People kept saying, I love this because you're taking this research and you're bringing it into practice. What we wanted to do was have that self piece, that self monitoring and that match piece, that accountability piece built into the same tool. So what happens with self and match and when we first started it, it happened and with every system now is a child or a student or a client or an individual is self reflecting on how they're doing with certain target areas. 
And then they're having that accountability check, either with an, a peer or an adult or a teacher or a mentor. And so that's really how that that concept of self match started was way back in our graduate work, um, working in different schools in um, in Pennsylvania, which is a state that neither of us are really working in now, but it was a neat way to to meet. Yeah. And I think the other thing that is neat about this is, um, you know, charity in everybody's daily lives in their work, they check in with their supervisors probably on a weekly basis or bi-weekly basis, hopefully not any longer than that. And so we thought when we were developing this and, and really learning about that social accountability piece and how important that is, that is kind of like the natural schedule of check-in, right? Like we don't all work independently and don't get feedback from our supervisors. We, we get a job assigned to us. We have a task that we have to do. And then we check in with our supervisors. Like, am I on the right track? Do, am I doing okay? Do I need to change anything? And, and that's what happens in everyday life. And so for us, if we can teach students how to self-monitor their behavior and then also how to look for feedback from those who are supervising them, especially if they're you know growing into employment opportunities, that's what happens in natural life for all of us, right? We all engage in this practice. So if we can do it from an early age, we're really setting up our learners for success. Absolutely. And that's, I think that's a great place to kind of think about and situate this before we kind of dive into the frontiers research piece, which thank you both. You did a lovely, um, the article was fabulous. I just want to kind of situate us in terms of working with uniquely abled individuals, whether you're a family member, an educator, a support professional, um, the framework of multi-tiered systems of support, right? We have frameworks that help provide academic and behavioral strategies for students with various needs. We've got MTS, MTSS, um, but we also have response to intervention. We have positive behavior interventions and supports. Lots of methods out there used to identify and support, you know, desired behaviors, particularly Mm -hmm. in school settings. Can you talk a little bit about where you would place your program on um, the spectrum of services and whether or not it's um, focused around school settings or home settings as well? That's a great question. So the great thing about self and match, it's a self monitoring system and a motivational system all in one. And so where this fits in in the MTSS world could fall in academic supports. It could also fall in um, social supports. It could fall in communication supports because as a behavior analyst, we see everything as a behavior. So whether it's increasing um, reading fluency, whether it is increasing your math facts, whether it is um, writing neater in your notebook, taking um, uh, making sure that your homework is written down in your agenda, uh, being friendly to peers in the classroom, initiating or ending conversations appropriately, or staying in the classroom if you have a student who is a runner and is running out of the classroom, or using materials appropriately, self and match can really help support students with any challenge they're having, not just the kind of behavioral challenges that people associate um, uh, challenging behavior at school, right? There might be other areas of need that these students need support in. um, And self-monitoring is something that is so flexible that it can be helped across 
all of the tiers of MTSS. And then even diving in a little bit deeper, if you think about that traditional PBIS model with a tier one, tier two, tier three level of support, we have seen self and match and self-monitoring used at that tier one level as a school-wide intervention where every student in the school is self-monitoring on the school-wide expectations. And uh, Jamie, we have some great examples of that. We can talk about maybe a little bit of the work that we've done at the Monarch School for that tier one level of support. And then up to the tier two level of support, maybe you have a student who is in um, who has a, an IEP and they are in a general education classroom and they need a little bit more individualized support where we can um, make their system look a little bit more uh, specific and unique to their areas related to their IEP. But then we've also seen as a tier two, a special education classroom where a students are in a self-contained classroom and they're using class-wide self and match. And maybe every one of them is earning a different amount of points or they have a different number of questions um, or they're getting a different number of reinforcers during the course of the day, but they're still using it as a kind of class-wide system all the way up to a tier three support where you have a student who is has an extremely individualized system where maybe they have a lot of visual support. Maybe they're getting access to reinforcement multiple times during the course of the day. Maybe they have very different questions that are tiered and specifically geared towards areas of need in their IEP. So it can be used all the way throughout the spectrum of the tiers of support through um, an MTSS system. So Jamie, why don't you start with one of the examples from a tier one you know, where really Absolutely. it's school-wide for everyone. And so that we could really differentiate between that as we go to tier two and three for those people who might not be familiar with MTSS. Absolutely. And before I start, one thing that we um, have been remiss to mention is when you have the self match manual, one of the key pieces is not just the forms that come out of it, not just the self-monitoring, but it's that pre-planning that works smarter, not harder, that's at the core of this intervention and should be at the core of, of many good interventions, um, really thinking through all the what-ifs before you start. So um, in the manual, you have a considerations guide. You go through that guide collaboratively as part of a team where you're thinking through all the what-ifs. What if you know, what What are our target areas? What? How frequently do we want to do a check-in? And you're using data to make these type of decisions. So in terms of the tier one type of um, interventions we put in place, I'll, I'll walk you through a little story about a school that we support and how we've used it. Um, so the Monarch School of San Diego is a school in downtown San Diego. And what's so interesting about this school is it's not necessarily a school for students with IEPs or individualized um, special education needs, um, but every single student on the campus has one commonality, and that's either that they're homeless or they're significantly housing, um, have significant housing um, instability. And because of that population, the school sees a lot of um, behaviors that pop up um, over time. And and sometimes these behaviors are because of the, the trauma the kids have experienced um, being homeless. Some of the um, the behaviors are because maybe they haven't um, been systematically been taught what it looks like to be respectful or be responsible or follow directions, some of the, the school-wide language that they were using as a whole. And so we were approached and they said, we 
feel that our students would really benefit from having a very clear way to self-evaluate their behavior. We want to prepare them for life out of school. We're a school that's kindergarten through high school. We want to give them the tools so that as they go on to be citizens of society, they've really um, understand what it looks like to be respectful or to be responsible as as a citizen. And so they said, let's let's brainstorm how we can infuse self and match as part of what we're already doing with our school wide PBIS. They already had really strong expectations as a school, um, but those were just kind of posted around the school. And so as we talk later about our Frontiers article and and the work we did, um, really looking at how do we make sure those expectations you have posted are um, embraced as a school and, and systematically taught. Um, But once we went through the considerations guide with the school, we ultimately decided to start with a kindergarten through fifth grade rollout. So every student in kindergarten through fifth grade at Monarch School, the intent was to have a self match form for. And throughout the day at different frequencies based on the age of the student or the the preferences of the teacher, the students would self-reflect on the school-wide PBIS language. And then after the students self-reflected, the teachers give them feedback. And there's some type of reinforcement built in on some type of criteria, um, all predetermined based on the teacher input, but that looks differently for a kindergarten student versus a fifth grade student. The, um, the, the little kids might circle smiles and frowns, or they might be doing more frequent check-ins because they need additional supports where the um, fifth grade students are doing less frequent check-ins or earning re- um, reinforcement less option, uh, um, I'm sorry, less, less often. So a lot of that's just dependent on each individual student. You're listening to Elevating Education, a podcast from Felician University in New Jersey. You know, the rationale when you guys um, did the work that you did for Frontiers, there's something about starting where you did. And why was it the best place to start with self-monitoring when, you know, I think you could talk a little bit about that because in terms of the classroom as the first step of teaching self-monitoring, why don't you um, kind of give us a little background there and share another example, maybe a tier two. So one of the reasons why we decided to start where we did in the Frontiers article was because we often get asked, what are the prerequisite skills that students need to have in order to effectively self-monitor? And from all of our time consulting, one of the things that Jamie and I kept coming back to was this concept of going back to basics and making sure that our students, wherever they are, if they're in the gen ed setting, if they are in a special education classroom, no matter how uniquely um, individualized their needs are, that we are ensuring that they understand what is expected of them. Um, I think there's too many times where, like Jamie said, even when we started with the Monarch School, they had their expectations. They were on an eight by 11 and a half sheet of paper hung on the wall, but were they really reinforced? Were they really reviewed? Did we really have any indication that we would know that the students or the staff in the building for that matter, knew what those expectations are off the top of their head. And if we don't know this, then that's where we have to start. And so every time that we consult, we look around the classroom and we see, do they have classroom expectations or are there school-wide expectations? Because that is a simple, well-researched classroom management strategy that is easy 
inexpensive and can be quickly added to any classroom, but it makes such a difference. And it's sometimes it's those simple things that can really make such a huge impact. And so when we were thinking about, you know, what happens now that we have students coming to a virtual classroom, that is still just as important. We have to make sure that the students know that our expectation is that their camera is on or it's not, or that they use the chat or they don't, or they use the hand raise button to make sure that they, you know, get the teacher's attention if they want to ask questions. Um, what is that respectful behavior look like in a virtual classroom? It's just as important, maybe even more important, um, because all of these students during the pandemic were learning this for the first time. So it was like we had all kindergartners again, whether you were in seventh grade or 12th grade or kindergarten, none of us had experienced this before. So we really had to go back to those basics. And so for us, starting out reminding everyone of utilizing those very simple tried and true classroom expectations um, is the place to start. Yeah, and Katie, when we looked at that, what we did is we really went back to that research from way back even in the 60s. And we we did we sifted and we dug through all of this research on why do we set expectations as that first step for self-monitoring. And what we came to is that through the research, there were kind of four key areas for setting up those expectations. And that's what we talked through in length in the article. But I can recap the four for you if you'd like me to right now. That'd be great. And then we could talk a little bit about the title beyond the classroom walls. So maybe how it starts in the classroom, but then it's carried over into other settings. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first expectation, the first step in setting those expectations was when we looked at the research and kind of synthesized it was the importance of co-constructing the expectations with students, allowing students to have a voice in the process. What we found is by allowing students to have a voice, they are more um, engaged with the process. They really understand what does it look like to be respectful? What does it look like to follow directions? I keep using these same ones as examples, but of course, educators should use the ones that fit best with their classrooms, or if they have school-wide expectations of soar or roar or pride or whatever, you know, you can infuse the same language with those. But when we look at that co-construction, an example of what we did at the Monarch School was we had students engaging in what these behaviors look like, and we took pictures and we hung those pictures on the walls. So instead of it just saying, we are safe, you know, there's pictures of the kids engaging in safe behaviors right there and and co-constructing that process. And as a classroom or as a school or as an individual, really being a part of that, that development of the expectations. The second key um, ex uh, tip we found was confirming that they're simple, easy to understand, age appropriate and enforceable. So making sure that it's meeting the students at their different levels and positively framed. And positively framed. We're always looking at what is it that we want the student to do, not what is it that we don't want them to do. We feel like the more they can hear and the more you can use that language in your everyday life. And we talk with um, educators about making sure that parents know the expectations so we can use that same language across settings. I love the way you're being kind right now. I love the way you're keeping your hands to yourself. So really stepping away from that, don't run, don't hit, don't blah, blah, blah. And instead really looking at those positive 
that third step is really looking at teaching to fluency by explicitly teaching and practicing the expectations, <laughs> making sure that you're bringing it into the classroom, not just that first day of school, not just that first week of school, but really when you have a couple minutes at, at a spare time, how do you infuse it in those couple minutes? Or when you come back from winter break or Katie always has good examples. When else would you do it, Katie? If you have a new student join the classroom, if your principal stops in the classroom, if you have a your special education classroom and you have a parent coming to tour your classroom, those are perfect opportunities. A substitute teacher, those are great opportunities to review those expectations. And the more frequently you do it throughout the course of the year, the more the students will see how important they are. And the more adults that utilize that language and reinforce, oh, I'm so glad you were being kind, you were so respectful, the more that the students will buy into those expectations. If we use that language, the students will also embrace those expectations as well. And part of that, I loved the recommendation about creating short videos, right, on social media, Flipgrid, TikTok, incorporating video. Talk, talk a little bit about how during the pandemic, teachers really expanded their repertoire there and have started to do a lot more of the creation of short videos. Yeah, so I think there's so many different ways that teachers became really creative during the pandemic because we had to, right? So not only did teachers have to say to themselves, how am I going to model this for my students, but how am I going to engage with them in a way that they find interesting right now. And TikTok is all of the craze with many, many of our young learners. And so how much more powerful and meaningful is it to have your teacher make a quick 10 or 15 second clip about here's what it looks like to be respectful in my classroom and be able to share that. And then at any time, the teacher can reference that. That is a tangible asset that that teacher has created even if it took them a little bit of time to do it, it's available to them at all times. They can reference that over and over again with their students. And when their students see them doing things that the students relate to, it helps them get that buy-in. Um, in addition to TikTok, one of the other things that I think many classroom teachers were using was um, Google Jamboard. It is what we found during the pandemic to be so beneficial in our trainings to teachers as well, because it's an interactive whiteboard We've seen teachers be extremely creative using T-charts that have the expectations of the classroom and using it as an interactive activity where there's pictures associated to what being kind looks like and what it doesn't look like. And then they can say, Charity, go in and move one of the expectations over to being kind. Jamie, go in and move one of them over to not being kind. So it's a way to get the students to not only interact at a distance with one another, because sometimes we miss that personal interaction when we don't have a physical classroom. But here we can put two or three students or even a whole class of students into one Jamboard and have them all working together um, to reinforce what those expectations are. I'm always blown away with the way that educators take these ideas and run with them. And, you know, we had this idea of using Google Jamboard for teaching expectations. And we received an email once from a school psychologist who had 
taken it well above and beyond where we expected. And she actually, and I'm not actually sure how she did this, but she created little gifts of herself engaging in expected behaviors and, and moving around and motioning and put those into a Google Jamboard so that when she was in distance learning, teaching expectations to her students, there were pictures of herself engaging in all the different target areas. And I just, it's so incredible to see the way that different educators use these tools. Um, Google Jamboard and, and TikTok, and there's so many other amazing ones out there. Those are fabulous examples. And I think for the fourth area that you cover in Frontiers, that empowerment, you know, for students to take ownership. Can you give an example or two about, you know, how students, how you've seen this happen? Because I know it can be um, a longer process for some students than others. And if that first step of teaching self-monitoring is recognizing expectations and, you know, empowering students to take ownership, how have you seen that play out? So I, we have heard time and time again, once students learn how to self-monitor, and like you said, it takes some students two or three days and they figure it out. And sometimes it takes students 13, 14 days to figure that out. Um, I think in saying that, recognizing that every student is unique, every student is different. And just because one intervention doesn't work immediately, doesn't mean that we should give up on that intervention. It, it's like a diet, right? You might lose two pounds in the first day and then not lose any pounds for the next week, but you stay consistent and eventually that weight starts to come off. Interventions are the same. So um, sometimes we have to use them a little bit more consistently before we start to see that behavior change. But once we see that behavior change start to happen, amazing things can happen, especially with self-monitoring different than other interventions and a self-monitoring system with a social accountability like Self and Match. Some of the things that we have seen, we have this like amazing hysterical story about a learner that was using uh, self and match in a social skills program. And then we decided to uh, transition to a swimming program. And we were gonna use self and match in the swimming program because the students were already familiar with self and match from the social skills program. And so when we came over to uh, the pool, to um, our swimming program, we brought our clipboard and our papers to do our self monitoring. And what we found was that when water, uh, touched paper, it really made the paper break apart. And so after our first time using it, we had to go back to the drawing board and then we laminated the paper. And we were like, wow, that was silly of us. We should have laminated from the beginning. And we laminate the paper, we come back to the pool the next week and we find out that um, dry erase markers wash off as soon as they get wet. And so then we couldn't use the intervention then. And then the third week we came back and one of the students who was supporting our program um, he said, what about uh, wax pencils? And so ultimately we use wax pencils to be able to implement self-match, which was not the original intention, um, but that's what ended up working. But that's kind of a, a long introduction to the story. So the other part of the story is that when we finally had the intervention working. We went to the student when it was time to fill out the form. We said, you know, did you follow directions? And the student said, no. And we said, huh, we were swimming, holding on to you this entire time. You did everything we asked you to do. You put your head in the water, you blew bubbles, you went on your back. How come you're giving yourself a no? And he said, well, 
I peed in the pool. And we're like, oh, that's right. Peeing in the pool is not following directions. If you need to go to the bathroom, you have to ask a counselor. And we have talked to them about this ahead of time. If you need to use the bathroom, go beforehand, ask a counselor if you have to go. <clears throat> but that's the amazing thing about self-monitoring. Students, when they effectively learn how to self-monitor, and especially in a system like self and match where they get points for yes matches, they get one point at least for engaging in the expected behavior, and they get one point for honestly self-reflecting. If they say no, they still get one point for honestly self-reflecting, even if they didn't engage in the expected behavior, if they match with their staff. So they're more likely to be honest and say, I peed in the pool, because when they say no, they still get one point for that honest self-reflection. And so sometimes there are behaviors that we don't see because we can't have eyes on the back of our head, even though as you know, educators, we all wish we could, um, that students will honestly self-reflect on when given the opportunity and taught what the expected and unexpected behaviors are, and also taught that no is not a bad thing. No is an opportunity to grow. We really embrace that growth mindset and meeting students where they're at and making it a teachable moment. So in that moment, we said, you know, hey, buddy, like, you're right. Being in the pool is not following directions. You know, what could we have done differently next time? And then having that processing with him to understand, oh, I should have asked my staff person to take me to the bathroom instead of peeing in the pool. Um, so I think like that's a beautiful way of when you see self-monitoring really take full effect and where students really embrace and understand self-monitoring. And I know that you know, patience is a virtue. We all know that, right? Some people say, I think there's a great quote, that patience attracts happiness. It brings near that which is far. And I want you to tell us a little bit about patience when it comes to self-monitoring, because you use that great analogy of the diet, right? And we all know that some people make it through their first week of the diet and they don't lose a pound yet. And so they they give up and they go to a new diet. You know, what is the value in terms of patience and sticking with the program? Absolutely. I'm going to jump in on Katie's story she shared about the pool because I think it's a perfect example of this. Just like a diet, if you know that it's tried and true and it's evidence-based, there's a reason to stick with it. And even a lot of the most famous diets out there have these accountability checks and check-ins that we've talked about with self-monitoring. Um, but with Katie's pool example, she could have easily, after that first day, said, you know what? The paper got ruined at the pool. Let's go on to a different intervention. Or once the um, laminated papers were getting washed away, she could have said, you know what, let's not do this intervention at the pool. The laminated papers are getting washed away. But instead, she said, this is an evidence-based practice. We know that self-monitoring has a history of working. Instead of just stopping the intervention, let's figure out how to make it work. So she said, actually, she didn't say one of her undergraduate students said, hey, let's try wax pencils. And that's all it took for that intervention to start working with her students. And so I think it's such a great example about how sometimes the intervention won't work right away, or sometimes you need to make tweaks to the intervention or, or to be patient, as you talked about, making sure we know what those expectations are before we're having the student evaluate it. So 
it does take time sometimes. Maybe you're going back to those considerations guide and saying, what is it that we need to figure out? What do we need to fine tune? But when we know an intervention such as self-monitoring has a history of being an effective tool, it's not necessarily about saying, let's try it for three days and let's move on. It's about um, seeing what needs to be adjusted so that it can be an effective tool with, with individuals. This is Elevating Education. I would love in wrapping up to just give you both a chance to, um, you talked a little bit about some of the hidden benefits of using self-monitoring and the self and match system. Is there anything you want to share with our listeners in terms of pointing them to resources um, where they can learn more about the program? Want to take it, Jamie? Sure. So um, one other hidden benefit that I thought of, and I'm sure Katie will come up with more, is um, is the beauty of self-monitoring being a generalization procedure, meaning it's once you learn it, it, it sticks with you because you're with yourself wherever you go. So I think, you know, when we talked earlier about other interventions that might be used in schools where they're adult driven, when the adult isn't present, then maybe the intervention doesn't keep with its effectiveness. So mm-hmm. I, I find for myself that that's one of those um, hidden benefits you get out of it is that once you learn it, then the student knows it. Mm-hmm. Um, Katie, were there any other hidden benefits you wanted to jump in on before I share resources? No, I think that's pretty good for a, a start for everybody to learn a little bit about self and match and you know, sharing the resources I think is a next great place also. So I, I would say the easiest way to get everything you need is by starting on our website, which is www.selfandmatch.com. And what I mean by a starting place is that'll give you information on the research. If you're a research nut like Katie and I, you can read all of that research, including the Frontiers article. You can find links right there. If you're interested in learning more about training opportunities um, specific to this intervention, we have all of our trainings up there, as well as if you're interested in acquiring a copy of our manual that's available for purchase through the website or through lots of our distributors as well. Wonderful. Well, Jamie and Katie, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing such very practical, useful information. Um, We will um, provide links to the Frontiers article as well as your website. And um, I'm sure if people want to follow up with you directly, they will reach out. Thank you again. Thank you so much. This podcast has been a production of Radio Felician, the voice of the Franciscan University of New Jersey. Visit us anytime at RadioFelician.com. Want to send an email? Reach out at radiostation at Felician.edu. Radio Felician, the Falcon.